right, Psalm 34, as he mentioned, is where we're going to look this morning. Psalm 34, what a delight to be back here. This is our fourth meeting with Ambassador Baptist Church, a second time with Pastor Josh Ermler, and we have just been looking forward to it. Let me have my wife, Mary Lynn, stand. Uh, Mary Lynn, and a wife of uh, now almost 29 years, and I praise the Lord for her. Our son, John Jr., is over in the children's meeting, and so we have uh, been praying. Now, I know that many of you have been praying for this meeting. I've sensed it. In fact, several of you have told me that you have, uh, which uh, thrills my heart. But let me just say this. Now that we've started, would you keep praying? <laughs> and let me encourage you to have this word is a word that I trust will become very uh, on the front of our lips. Let me encourage you to have a heart cry meeting every day this week. What I mean by that is get alone with God, or better yet, get together with your spouse and family and lift your voices and cry out to the Lord about the burdens on your heart. You know, it may be that there's some issue that just constantly plagues you. Well, why not name that to God and say, God, would you give me the truth that you know I need that would set me free in regard to that issue? Now, let me ask you, do you think God would delight to answer that? Absolutely. Well, let's ask him. <laughs> oh, yes, let's ask him. Uh, maybe you feel very ineffective in the matter of serving God. Well, then name that to God. Just, just talk to him. And uh, say, God, would you give me the truth that you know I need that would equip me to effective ministry? You think God would delight to answer that? Absolutely. And so I have found that in meetings where people take this challenge seriously, it makes a radical difference. And uh, we have the opportunity in a meeting like this uh, where we have service after service in a close period of time uh, to build truth upon truth. Uh, in other words, to be able to refer to the previous message and it be not so far away that you can actually remember it. <laughs> and so uh, uh, we have the opportunity for what's often called the cumulative effect of preaching. And uh, that's uh, very special in a revival meeting such as this uh, where we have this uh, service after service. But obviously, in order to benefit from that, you got to be here. Now, I recognize we live in a day where there are bizarre schedules. I do understand all that. But let me just say this. Would you come every service that God wants you to come? Now, that's not a trick. <laughs> because God knows what he's doing. I was in a meeting one time, and a fellow came, and he had no intention of coming back. In fact, he didn't even know there was a revival meeting. He just happened to show up that Sunday. He just kind of hit and miss kind of a guy. And God began to stir his heart. He went to his boss, and he asked his boss if he could take off a few days of work that week. His boss said uh, that he could not take off any vacation days, but that he could take off days without pay. <laughs> well, he did. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He met with God. So, uh, I do trust that you'll come every service that God wants you to come even tonight, <laughs> even though there's a game. <laughs> now, my father pastored in Chicago. That's where I grew up. And, of course, he didn't have to say much about this because the Bears weren't doing very good. But uh, uh, in 1985, they did get good for one year. Uh, but Dad would always say on, these, uh, you know, on these, these kinds of Sundays, he'd say, Now, tonight, we're going to find out who loves Jesus. <laughs> And we'd have the best Sunday night service that we'd had in weeks. So uh, I trust that you'll do what God wants you to do, and it'll be right. All right, Psalm 34 is where we're going to look this morning. Psalm 34. Several years ago, the Lord burdened me to just sit down on this psalm and stay there for months. 
Uh, often, as I'm uh, reading in uh, my own personal study, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground. But God just said, no, I want you to stop and just stay right there. I never intended to preach on this psalm. I was there because God was speaking to me. He knew I needed it. But what a psalm. What a glorious psalm. And what a foundation, I trust, that the Lord will use in our hearts to focus our, our hearts and minds for these days together. Let's begin by just reading verse 1 and verse 22, the bookends of the psalm. Verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Then verse 22, the Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. And then would you look at verse 18, one of the great revival verses in our Old Testament. It says, the Lord is nigh, that's near, unto them that are of a broken heart. And saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. I want to speak this morning on a God-focused life. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you for stirring our hearts already in this service. Now, Spirit of the living God, would you speak to us individually right now and corporately? But oh, would you show us the grand realities of truth that connect to these words? Lord, where we need to be refocused, would you so work that that adjustment is properly made? May we gladly yield to it. Lord, use truth today, now, and in these days, Lord, to set free. Lord, I pray for that longing soul that wants to know you more, that hungers and thirsts for you. Lord, I pray that they would know what it is to be filled with the Spirit and know it based on sure words. I do plead the blood of Jesus, which you protect us from the attack of the evil one who seeks to, uh, to confuse and deceive. Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you at the throne far above the enemy. I claim the victory you've already won. Would you manifest it now? May you be honored. We ask this in your great name. Amen. What is real life all about. Well, since God himself is life, then real life is all about God. It really is. And since a life of faith in fullness is all about God, then we must focus on God. Now, what's involved, especially practically speaking, what's involved in a God-focused life? Here in Psalm 34, as we peruse these tremendous verses, I want us to note five indications of a God-focused life. Not surprisingly, it starts out in the first three verses with praising God. Look again at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. What a statement. I will bless the Lord. Now notice this. Most of the time, we're looking for God to bless us. This says, I will bless the Lord. Has it ever crossed your mind that it's possible for you to bless God? 
It says it. I will bless the Lord at all times. God is looking for his people to look up with that upturned face and bless the Lord. Is it not amazing that while we still live in a sin-cursed body, it is possible through the blood of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus to actually bless the Lord. But that's what it says. I will bless the Lord. Now notice, at all times. That, of course, means in the good times as well as the the bad times. Why? Because the bad times can turn into good times when we learn to bless the Lord. When we learn to say, God, you're bigger than all this. I don't understand this. It makes no sense to me at all. I say this quite often. Uh, uh, But God, you know how to turn this into good. You know how to to be the master chess player and use this for good. And friends, God knows how to do that. But it's a lesson I find that I often have to keep relearning. (laughs) Ah, yes, we know what it is to praise God when God works some great victory. But what about when everything seems to be falling apart? The New Testament tells us, and we know that all things work together for good, but it's conditional to them that love God. It's that heart that loves God enough to say, God, I don't understand this, but would you take even this and use it for good? And he's the master at doing that. And so literally, we can bless the Lord. At all times, the good times, uh, the delightful times, as well as the bad times, the difficult times, because God can use even that for good. Now, when David wrote this, he had just come off a very difficult time. Look at the inscription above the psalm. It says, a psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So this was written before David was king. He had been anointed, but Saul was still king. He was on the run. Saul was trying to kill him. He was fleeing here, fleeing there, and finally he made an unwise move, and he fled to the land of the Philistines. Now, that was very unwise, because you remember David killed Goliath. (laughs) And he realizes, wait a second, I, I, I I shouldn't have come here. And so he feigns insanity. Some of us wouldn't have to feign it. Uh, but uh, he, he feigns insanity, and then the, you know, the king says, I'll get this, get this madman out of here. And that's when he writes this psalm. <laughs> I will bless the Lord at all times. Then notice, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Ah, oh, many times as a preacher's kid, I remember as some difficulty would come up, Dad would be sitting there, we're talking about it, and we're all getting worked up, and then Dad would turn heavenward, and his face would relax, and the glow of God would emanate, and he would say, well, bless the Lord. <laughs> And it was so real and so full of faith. It just changed everything. It put our perspective back on God and made us realize, wait a second, God's bigger than this. I read uh, this morning some words from Andrew Murray. He said, don't say, can God? Say, God can, because that's who he is. And we wound him when we keep saying, can God, as if he's not big enough. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Verse 2, my soul shall make her boast. In the Lord. Do you know there is a legitimate kind of boasting? It's when it's in the Lord. And it really is legitimate. 
It's pure joy in another's triumph, as one writer puts it. I remember a pastor friend of mine, he's now with the Lord. Charlie Kittrell was his name. He pastored in Indianapolis, Indiana for over uh, 40 years. And uh, when I first got to know him, it was back in the 90s. I was there for meetings, and we'd go out to eat lunch. And, and uh, he'd get to telling stories of answers to prayer. And he'd get on a theme, and he'd just run through a whole series of stories. And then he'd jump themes, and he'd uh, tell a whole other series of stories. And about the third day, he came to me. He had tears in his eyes. He said, John, I hope you don't think I'm just an old man boasting. In other words, the wrong kind of boasting. He said, but when I pray, I tell the Lord, Lord, if you'll do it, I'll tell it to your honor and glory. So he looked back at me, said, so I don't have a choice. (laughs) That's how he talked. He said, I've got to tell you. I remember one time I had him preach at one of our conferences. He preached on that very theme, Lord, if you'll do it, I'll tell it. I'll never forget a statement he made. He said, some of uh, of you, uh, God doesn't do much for you. He said, because you don't tell it to his honor and glory. You see, when you really trusted God, when it really wasn't you just going through motions and faking things, when you actually trusted God, then when God moves, you know he actually did it, which means you can actually lift your voice and know that you're not self-boasting. You're boasting in the Lord because you know God did it. A lot of times we just go through the motions and then because we're supposed to say it, we say it to God be the glory, but down deeper thinking, you know, I really did a great job (laughs) because it was just us. But I'm telling you, when you learn to walk by faith based on sure words, then when God steps in and moves, you know God did it. And you can talk about it and know that you're glorifying God. Lord, if you'll do it, I'll tell it. And then it says at the end of verse 2, the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. A humble God fears rejoice when God is exalted. There's something about praise. There's something about blessing God. There's something about rejoicing in God that is contagious. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. It moves them. It stirs. It spreads. It's contagious. And so is griping. And we need to ask ourselves, are we leaders of praise or are we leaders of griping? I hate to say it, but I know what it is to lead a choir of griping. <laughs> you know, you just start saying something bad mouth and, you know, murmuring and, uh, you know, down on the mouth. And the next, to know, the next thing you know, this one's saying, and, this, and pretty soon we've got a whole choir going. But isn't it amazing when just one person starts praising God? And it's real. And it just spreads. And it impacts this one and this one. And all of a sudden the whole atmosphere has changed. As the perspective is put back on God. And thus you have the invitation of verse 3. Oh magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Friends I find that one of the hardest lessons for me to learn. Is to learn to praise God. When humanly. You don't really see anything to praise God for. But it's vital. I remember back several years ago, we had pulled into Dunbar, Pennsylvania, just above the West Virginia line in a very mountainous area. And uh, 
was amazing as we got into the uh, downtown, little tiny town, a little uh, town square type thing, and, and then I had to pull up a hill. I didn't know if my trailer was going to make it. I pulled a fifth wheel uh, RV, and, and uh, we made it up there finally. And uh, the pastor came out, and we were trying to figure out a place to park this thing. And, and normally, you try to get parallel to the building and this and that. Well, forget that. We were just looking for a place that was flat enough to make this thing work. And we're trying this angle, and we're trying this angle, and nothing was working. The sun was setting, and uh, uh, it was becoming trying, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And so uh, uh, finally the pastor stepped back and he, he said, John, look at this. Look at the, the ground here and here. He said, I think if you come in this way and stop right there, he said, I think we can make this thing work. Well, let's give it a try. He said, now we got some extra boards if you don't have enough. Now normally, you know, evangelist has uh, plenty of boards uh, for, you know, backing your tires up on the, and getting level. Well, I, I didn't have enough. <laughs> this, this, this is going to take their boards too. And so we stacked that thing up. In fact, when we finally got the thing up there, we were so high on the one side that when you pull the steps out, you didn't reach the ground. And so we had to use the baptistry steps to get to our steps <laughs> so that we could get in the trailer. But uh, I remember when we were getting ready to back up on this thing, uh, it was a weird angle, and I wanted to be able to uh, you know, very carefully handle this. So I had Mary Lynn behind the wheel, and I was watching her because the truck was at an angle. And uh, the pastor was over here by where uh, the three axles were going to roll up on these boards. And uh, so I was waving her to just, you know, let's bring it back a little bit. And as those tires began to go up, all of a sudden you could hear this crack. And at the time, I didn't know if it was wood or if it was, you know, something worse. And I'll be honest with you, I was irritated. (laughs) And if the pastor had not been there, (laughs) I could have expressed my irritation. (laughs) But I remember looking at that, trying to figure out what just happened. And he's looking down there, and he looked back up at me, and a big old smile stretched across his face. And he said, well... Praise the Lord. (laughs) Now, thankfully, it was real. And it just immediately put my perspective right. God knows what he's doing. We made it up there and so forth and so on. But what a lesson. Praising God. So you know what that is? It's God focus. When we find ourselves down in the mouth, griping, complaining, all upset, you know what? It's not a God focus. Because when there's a God focus, you realize that, wait a second, even this mess, God can turn and use for good. So praising God is a very key indication of a God-focused life. Let's go to the second indication. That's seeking God. This is verses 4 through 7. It says in verse 4, I sought the Lord. Well, what does it mean to seek God? Well, look at the next phrase. And he heard me. Ah, but that implies part of seeking God is crying out. Because it says, he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. This is a different word than the word for fearing God. This is the idea of obviously being afraid, fears. And so it says, I sought the Lord. I cried out to God and he heard me and delivered me. Don't you love that word? He rescued me. He delivered me. From all my fears. I want to ask you this morning, what are your fears? You know, one of the issues that we all have to face, and I'm told that ladies face it more, not sure if it's really true, but it's fears. Economic, health, relationships, fears. Do you know that David had fears? This is the man who in faith faced Goliath. 
And yet here, he's indicating that he had fears. But he knew what to do with them. He knew to run to God. He knew to lift his voice. He knew to cry out. And that God would deliver him. And do you know when that becomes the practice of your life, then the next verse makes a lot of sense. It says, they looked unto him and were lightened. The idea of that word is, were radiant. And their faces were not ashamed. When you learn to cry out to God and go to God and seek God and you see God deliver here and rescue here and save here and you see the hand of God, then you know that when the next issue comes up, no biggie, God can handle this. It's not can, God, it's God can. And you can look to God, as it says here, with that radiant faith. I'm going to tell you something. Every congregation needs faces that are filled with radiant faith. They make a difference to the preacher as he's preaching. They make a difference to everybody who comes to that assembly. Radiant faith. I remember being with that Pastor Kittrell there when times uh, where something uh, had happened that was very, very uh, difficult. And then I saw his face. And ah, it was just radiant. He said, but we know what to do. We'll go to God. I'm going to tell you something. He knew what to do. He'd done it many times before. And uh, uh, he went to God and was not ashamed. God delivered once again. And so what a beautiful, beautiful picture here. Then you have the personal testimony of David in verse 6. This poor man. Ah, remember at this time of his life, he's on the run. He's a fugitive. This poor man, but rich in faith. This poor man cried. See, there's your parallel to verse 4. I sought the Lord. Because the next phrase says the same thing as verse 4. And the Lord heard him and saved him. That's parallel to verse uh, 4. Delivered out of all his troubles. Ah, those are the issues that produce the fears. This poor man cried out. And God heard and saved him out of all his troubles troubles. When's the last time you cried out? I don't mean prayed. I mean lift your voice and cry out. You know it's humbling to do that? That's why often we don't do it. Friends, there are times you just got to, you got to find a spot and you get alone with God and you lift your voice and you cry out. Why? Because it's faith. You see, sometimes we go through the motions of prayer and it becomes a mantra and we say the right words, but there's no real transaction of faith. But there's something about the desperation that leads you to lift your voice and cast yourself on God that puts it into a, the, the apex of faith, the top side of faith, where a true transaction of faith is actually taking place. My dear grandmother, a remarkable prayer warrior, Simple childlike faith. Stunning answers to prayer. She had people call her from all across the nation and literally from other countries to ask her to pray. A missionary called one time because somebody they were working with had contracted leprosy. It was a death sentence. And they asked my grandmother to pray that, the lep- that God would heal this leper. And uh, uh, so she went to the Lord about it and God healed the leper. Remarkable answers to prayer. But her life of faith started with this incident. This was in her 20s. 
She was not yet married. She was with some lady friends. They were on a large river that uh, way, way down the way, uh, there was a dam. And so uh, uh, as you went down the river, there were signs that let you know, bring your boat uh, to shore by this point. And there was finally a line that said, if you cross this line, there's no return because the uh, uh, the current, uh, uh, the pressure of it all would uh, take your boat, rowboat, right over the edge of the uh, dam. Well, she and her lady friends, and this was a time in her life when she really was not um, um, a devoted Christian, though she was saved, and they were going down the way, and they were talking, and they were not watching the signs. And they crossed that line of no return. And at one point, they got to looking around and realized, wait a second, we're, we're not supposed to be here. And they frantically took their oars and began to try to row this little boat over to the side, but uh, it wasn't working. They weren't making any headway. Obviously, the current was taking them toward the dam, and they saw that really within a matter of seconds, uh, they were going to be probably killed. And my grandmother cried out. She lifted her voice and she said, Lord, do you need me? Save me. Now, that's a fascinating prayer, isn't it? She put God first. She honored God. Lord, do you need me? Save me. I think God have said, Lord, save me. <laughs> and do you know when she cried out, immediately the boat was at land. And they climbed to safety. Very reminiscent of what we read in the Gospels. That when Jesus stepped into the boat, immediately the boat was at land. And for the rest of her many long years, she would say, remember the river. But that's where she learned to cry out. That's where she learned to lift her voice and cry out. Oh, may we learn the same. And that brings us to verse 7, which wraps it all up when it says, uh, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. I love this, the angel of the Lord. That's one of those phrases that deals with the personal presence of God himself. And notice the picture, he encamps. I love that picture. He encamps all around those who fear him. Now, sometimes we might think, well, I guess that kind of counts me out. I don't know what it is to be a God-fearer. Well, what does it mean to fear God? I remember back when I was in graduate school getting curious about the word fear. The fear of the Lord, fear God, what does it mean? And so I looked it up in a lexicon. <laughs> you know what that is? It's a fancy word for dictionary. In theology, we have code words to try to make it look like we're smart. But uh, at any rate, uh, I looked it up, and the definition said something like reverential awe. I thought, ooh, reverential awe. <laughs> and I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> Do you know that in this text, the context that we just came through, verse 4, 5, and 6, gives us a practical defining sense of what it is to fear God. I love this. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me. Verse 5, they looked unto him and were radiant, and their face is not ashamed. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard and saved him out of all his troubles. Why? Because the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. Ah, 
You see, the word fear him in that context is describing the one who's learned to seek God, to look to God in faith, and to cry out to God. You know what that is? That's fearing God. Now, there's more, but there's a very practical essence of what it is. Do you know what? You can do that. Any of us can do that. You know, the one thing we can do is faith, because faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker. The one thing we can do is say, God, I can't do it. (laughs) So I'm coming to you. And so there you have it. And God encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Ah, beautiful. So there we see seeking God. You see, that's a part of God focus. You have needs, okay, you know where to go. You go to God. That brings us to a third indication of a God-focused life. And that is experiencing God. This is verses 8, 9, and 10. Oh, taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you love it when the Bible puts such a practical word? Taste. I mean, this is not abstract. This is, uh, uh, this is very experiential. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I remember when my son, who's now 11, was... Uh, um, Oh, I don't know what he was at the time, maybe one and a half, two, I don't know. But he had never eaten bacon yet, so whatever age that would be. And uh, uh, there was a week uh, in our schedule where I was not in a meeting because my wife was asked to be a part of a recording, a musical recording. And so she was going to be gone for the week, and so uh, I was going to stake out with John Jr. And, uh, you know, when, 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 the, you know, when Mary Lynn's gone, uh, this means for us, it means pizza, it means hot dogs, you know, hamburgers, and other health foods. And so... Uh, <laughs> Well, well, we were in South Carolina, not too far away for, from where my wife's mother lives. And uh, she knew that Mary Lynn was going to be gone for the week. And she handed me a wad of cash. And she said, hey, down the way from where you're going to be parked, uh, there's a Denny's. So uh, once a day, why don't you take John Jr. out to eat at Denny's? Now, I don't know if this is what she meant, but maybe she was saying, you know, at least give the kid one decent meal a day, you know. <laughs> well... We went to Denny's every day, and, you know, we're ordering this and that, and there's a good kid's, kid's menu, and we're having fun. Well, one uh, time, it was supper time, but, you know, it was Denny's, so I had ordered this big breakfast, and, and uh, in my order, there was bacon. And I'm looking at John Jr., and, and I thought, you know, he's ready. He's ready for bacon. So I picked up a piece of bacon. I said, now, look, John, would you like to try a piece of Daddy's bacon? Boy, his eyes fixed on that, that quizzical look, and... You know, our son's a little bit particular, you know, texture, you know, specs and <laughs> those kinds of things, you know. So he's looking at it. I wasn't sure what he's going to do. He grabbed that bacon. He took a bite. And he's been stealing my bacon ever since. Ah, <laughs> oh, taste and see. You know, the Christian life is not just in the head. Now, obviously, it's based on truth, which enters us through the mind. We understand that. But God wants it to go beyond the mind into our experience. God wants us to experience him, to know him in that sense. Oh, taste. Taste God and see that God, now notice this, is good. Not merely will be. He is. That's why you can bless him at all times. Taste and see friend, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it says, blessed is the man. And it uses a particular word that means the strong man. Now, this is fascinating. Blessed is the strong man that trusteth in 
Him, God. Ah, so blessed is the strong man who doesn't trust in his own strength, but learns to trust in God and His strength. What a lesson. And then you have the challenge of verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, ye His saints, for there is no want or lack to them that fear Him. We already understand back up uh, earlier in the passage, to fear God is to seek Him, to look to Him, to cry out to Him. Okay, so do this, and there's no lack. You'll see God work. Then verse 10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord. What a verse. Shall not want or lack any good thing. Great promise. Experiencing God. Then a fourth indication of a God-focused life is fearing God. Now We've touched on fear, but now we have a very practical emphasis uh, of fearing God uh, in verses 11 down to verse 14. Notice verse 11. Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You know what that means? It means you can learn it. If you'll come as a child and listen to what he's saying here, that the big deal is faith. The big deal is, is looking at God and casting yourself, crying out to God, casting yourself on God. Okay, he says, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. This can be learned. Look at verse 12. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Well, we all want life. And we want it in its fullness. That's natural to us. God made us that way. So do you want that? Okay, yes. We'd all say, well, then verse 13, keep thy tongue from evil. Wow, where did that come from? <laughs> I mean, it's like out of the blue. We have this practical application. But see, God cuts right through all the, all the, the fat, as it were, and gets right down to the practical aspects of life. You want life in its fullness then learn to cry out to me instead of using your tongue for evil. Learn to cry out instead of criticize. You see, carnality campaigns. Talk, 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 criticize, criticize, campaign, get your little group. Whereas spirituality cries out to God, it supplicates. What a difference. Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips, it says, from speaking guile or deceit. You know, evidently we have a propensity of using our tongues for evil. You ever been in a situation where you're in a conversation and somebody else's name comes up and you all kind of like piranhas pick them to death and of course he's not there. And then you walk away feeling dirty. I know what that feels like, sad to say. But have you ever had that time where you're in a conversation and it's about to go that direction and you mind the check in your spirit, where the Holy Spirit is saying to your spirit, don't go there. And you mind that check. And you walk away clean and free. You see, there's life, there's freedom, there's fullness when we trust God. And thus, verse 14 continues by simply saying, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That brings us to the final indication of a God-focused life. And that is knowing God. Verse 15 down to the end in verse 22. It begins with God's readiness to deliver the righteous. Look at verse 15. This has become one of my favorite verses. It says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. 
And his ears are open unto their cry. So this theme of crying out keeps coming up. And it says, the eyes of the Lord are upon, now notice this, the righteous. Now you might be thinking, oh, the righteous, oh, forget it. You know, I'm defeated. I got besetting sins. I'm not very righteous. Now wait. What it says, his eyes are upon the righteous. He's talking about a group of people that legally are righteous. He's talking about the New Testament truth of what we call justification. Now look, when you come to that point in your understanding where you realize that sin is the problem, that hell really is the consequence that we deserve, but that Jesus really is the Savior, He's the answer. In other words, sin's the problem, but not sinning's not the solution. Jesus is. And you realize, wait a second, that's why he went to the cross. It's because I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't get there on my own. Try as I may, I'll never be good enough to meet God's standard. You know why? Because God's standard is perfection. It says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. Well, none of us meet that standard on our own. But here's the point. Jesus met the standard for us. He went to the cross. And now get this, our sin was literally put on him. You know why? So that his righteousness could be legally put on us. And when you make that choice to stop depending on yourself and you place your dependence on Jesus alone, not Jesus plus you because that's a mistrust in Jesus. A split trust is a mistrust in Christ alone. But when you trust Jesus alone to actually apply his saving work on the cross to you once and for all, at that moment, your sins are forgiven and his righteousness is legally credited over to your account so that from that moment onward, from a legal, judicial standpoint, when God looks at you, instead of seeing you with your sin, he sees you with the righteousness of his own son. You are a part of what God calls the righteous. And friend, by the way, if you're not in that group, you can get in that group today. You can place your trust in Christ alone today, and he'll do that for you. He'll forgive your sins, and he'll credit his righteousness to your account, and you'll become a part of this group. And here's the blessing of it. It's not just that you go to heaven. You get to experience a bit of heaven on earth because it says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. In other words, God's looking at you to see if you're going to look at him. Remember earlier, they looked unto him. It's like a parent wanting uh, eye contact with his child. Look at me. God's looking at us. He's watching. Not to pound us, but to help us. But it's not automatic. We need to cry out because the second phrase says, and his ears are open under their cry. So he's watching and he's listening. He's there ready with an almighty sufficiency. But he's waiting for the cry. He's waiting for faith. He's waiting for us to cast our dependence upon him. And when we do, that's when he steps in. He's watching us. He's looking at us to see if we're going to cry out instead of just try to eke it out. So that he can step in and deliver. Then you see the flip side of it in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. But then it picks it up in verse 17 with the positive flow. The righteous cry. And the Lord hears and delivers them. Out of all their troubles. Wow. 
So God's ready. He's there waiting. But then you see God's nearness to deliver the humble. Verse 18, the Lord is nigh. That's the word near. God is near. He's not far away. He's not distant. He may feel distant to you, but that's a lie. It says the Lord is near. He's nigh. He's near unto them that are of a broken heart. And save as such as we have a contrite spirit. Now, friends, to be broken in heart is to be heartbroken. And to be contrite is to be crushed in spirit. So what does that mean? The contrite are those who've had the self-will and self-trust crushed out of them. (laughs) They're crushed in spirit when they realize, I need God. And I need him not just to get to heaven. I need him every day. I need him in my marriage. I need him in child training. I need him in the workplace. I need God. And God is near those that are heartbroken. Because in self-sufficiency, they're not getting anywhere. And they're contrite. And self-will and self-dependence are crushed out. And they've learned to cry out. You see, the whole context of the psalm is letting us know that when it comes to brokenness, there's a whole lot that goes into brokenness. But but at the core essence of it is the heart that just is honest enough to say, God, I need you, and I know you're the answer, and I'm coming to you. Now, friends, we are very self-sufficient people, and God wants us to be God-sufficient. And you can't have God-dependence without God-focus. And so if we're self-focused... We're self-dependent. Now look, sometimes we think, well, okay, and we have all the things that we want to do, and they may be very good things that God wants us to do, but we focus on them, that's a problem. In other words, now think of this. Standards of separation and service for God. God wants all of that. We're supposed to be unspotted from the world. We're supposed to serve God, but we're not supposed to focus on that. We're supposed to focus on God. What happens is, is when you become standards and service focused, you're standards and service dependent. So that your Christian life grid is whether or not you're performing well. Well, that's going to lead to some real discouragement. (laughs) You see, God wants us to be God-focused. Now, when you're God-focused, then you can be God-dependent. When you're God-dependent, he's going to enable you. And yes, you'll be separated from the world and you'll serve with power. But the focus will be God. There's the difference. Wow. And friends, God is near to those who learn the habit of heart crying. Those who are broken enough to say, God, I need you all the time. You know, often we do this. Well, you know, the only thing we can do now is pray. (laughs) But we could have done that at the beginning. Now, honestly... Wouldn't it make a difference when children are growing up in a home when issues come up? Because we all have issues, all sorts of things, spiritual, physical, all sorts of things. For mom and dad to have a habit of heart cry where we say, stop everything, let's stop, let's, let's talk to God about this. Don't you think that would teach a mighty God-dependent focus to your children? It just does. When we just learn to just stop complaining and go to God about it. What a difference. What a radical difference then verse 19 many are the afflictions of the righteous okay this side of heaven because of the garden of eden yes there's going to be afflictions but 
the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, don't read that by itself. Read it in the flow. It's not a fatalistic deal. It's when you learn to cry out, he delivers you. That's the point. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But when you learn to cry out and go to God and trust God, ah, he delivers you out of them all, either by taking you out of it or taking you through it with his presence and comfort and power. Verse 20, he keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now look, not all health issues are connected to sin. Some are, according to the New Testament, but obviously not all. But it is amazing how many health issues are because of stress. When we learn to rest in God, it's a great blessing and help in many ways, not just spiritual. Verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked. And they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. You know, sometimes we can look out, especially in our world, and we see people that look like they're getting away with wickedness. But their day is coming. When God's judgment will right all wrongs. Then verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And the word redeem here is not the word redeemed by purchase, which is typically what we think. It's a different word, which means redeemed by sheer power. Like when God said in Exodus 6 and verse 6, I have redeemed you with my outstretched arm. Ah, that's the word here. The Lord redeems by his sheer power. That's who he is, the soul of his servants. Why? Because none of them that trust in him shall be desolate, shall be put to shame, shall be disappointed, embarrassed because God didn't step in. No. He'll step in. What an amazing song. It challenges us to bless the Lord, to boast in the Lord, to magnify the Lord, to seek the Lord, to look to the Lord, to cry out to the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to fear the Lord. You know, it sounds to me like it's all about God. And there's the whole point. There's the focus. And when that's real, you praise God. You seek God. You experience God. And thus fear God and know Him. That's the God-focused life. And friends, if we want the life of faith, because without faith it's impossible to please Him, then there has to be god focus, Because there is no God-dependence apart from God-focus. Perhaps as we begin this series of meetings, there's a need to allow the Spirit of God to refocus you. Well, let's let Him do that. And friend, maybe you're here today and you need to trust Jesus for the very first time. Salvation is not just a matter of getting you to heaven. It's a matter of getting Jesus into you. Because not only, as we saw, does He have His righteousness put on your account, He does that so that he then can move in and you receive his eternal life. That's where the God-focused life starts. Let's bow our heads for prayer.